Welcome, badasses, to another episode of the Badass Ladies Club. My name's Laurie. I'm here with my friend Jessica. Hey, guys. And we are most excited to bring you today's episode with our friend Julie Murphy, who is a number one New York Times bestselling author of a number of young adult novels, but namely Dumplin', which is a Netflix series now, Puddin', Ramona Blue, Side Effects may vary, like lots of books that we're going to talk about. But before we get into our interview with Julie, Jessica is going to talk about our very special badass of the week this week. Y'all, this badass of the week is like one of my favorite people. So we're calling out Jonathan Van Ness, um, which is kind of a full circle moment um, with Julie as well. But if you don't know, if you're living under a rock and you don't know who Jonathan Van Ness is, um, he's commonly known by the initials JVN. JVN. So if we reference JVN, that's who we're talking about. Um, they are an American hairdresser, podcaster, activist, author, and television personality from a little Netflix show you might know called Queer Eye. Only my favorite show ever. (laughs) Um, I listened to their um, audiobook. Yes. And it was so phenomenal, over extremely the top, vulnerable, yes. over the top. Oh, yes. It was, um, it was so good. I loved every minute of it. I love their fashion, their personality, their big heart, and just all around great human being. And um, just, there are no words for, JVN. It's overwhelming. I um, I love all things JVN, but I especially love his dog Pablo. I'm just gonna say like, Pablo and uh, all the cats. Little Pablo kind of reminds me of my dog Bowie a little bit. Um, and their story. So love JVN. Happy badass of the week, buddy. Yeah. Um, and obviously the invitation is open, <laughs> JVN, if you're listening. Um, and we would love to send you some stuff. But also, Julie, is he on the same do y'all have the same publisher? Is that what it is? Um, I think that JVN Jonathan is at Harper. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but, um, I had the incredible opportunity to do a book signing with Jonathan at book expo America in New York a few years ago. And, uh, they were sitting a few chairs down for me. And of course, like the line to see them was like, astronomical and I had like a a line that I was signing through as well and I was just like trying to tell every publicist that walked past me I was like (laughs) I have to be Jonathan I have to be Jonathan (laughs) I know everyone is saying this but please if Jonathan leaves please let them know because they were like I mean the thing about Book Expo America is it's like the one book event every year that like really famous people go to so like that same year I met Debbie Harry like it was just a wild year so I finally got to meet Jonathan backstage and um the reason like my in was like you like did like a whole like live stories on your Instagram when you watched Dumplin and I just wanted to let you know I saw that and it was so cool and it meant so much to me and so meet like you like anytime you meet like a like a really famous person like that it's always good to have like some kind of like connection so that there's like 
you know, so they meet so many people, but just so that your moment with them is just a little bit different. And so Jonathan was immediately like, oh my gosh, I, I remember this and I love this, this, this about it. And then I ended up like connecting with his assistant too, or their assistant too. And anyways, the coolest part was when Jonathan touched my hair Jessica. I know. Um, I, I was telling Laurie, I will never forget that moment because at the time I had an Apple watch uh-huh. and I was shampooing in the shampoo room and I got these messages from you. And I was looking on my watch and I see a picture of Jonathan Van Ness with his hands like, in your hair. In your and hair. I was like, <laughs> and I just like almost fainted and like my heart was pounding and Anyway, it was a great moment for me. I know it was a yeah. better moment for you, but it was a great well, moment for me. Well, I think, and I could be wrong, but I think Jonathan said I had incredible texture. Um, oh so you know. stop it. <laughs> you know, if you don't like, know, oh Jessica does my hair. Yes. Um, so yes, let's let's get to let's this. Bring it back, yeah. Um, yes. Julie Murphy if you've also been living under a rock, um, (laughs) is an incredible human being. As Laurie mentioned, she's a number one New York Times bestselling author of young adult um, novels and other things too. You have other collections that you've done, um, but you're also a committed activist supporting um, plus size and LGBTQ communities. And so I just, I wanted to touch a little bit on how I know Julie and how she got into um, my orbit. We met when I was probably 15 or 16 years old, right? Um, And we worked at Torrid together um, at the Parks Mall in Arlington. That is where it all started. And um, for those of you who don't know or may not have one near you, Torrid is owned by Hot Topic Incorporation, but Torrid is the plus size um, part of Hot Topic Incorporated. And um, it was it was a good team. It was a really fun place to be. But I learned very early on um that I was different, that obviously working at a plus size retailer, being the size that I am, that it it would, it just became very apparent to me how, um, there, there was a, a lack of, I don't, I don't know if trust is the right word, but the women would come in and be like, not you someone else, you know, and they would go to another employee who probably understood more like how things fit and where they were coming from. And so as much fun as I had there, I don't think I was very successful (laughs) is what I'm trying to say. You were fantastic. I mean, I think that like you were like the string bean of a girl (laughs) retailer. Um, and you are like really, like on the outside without anyone knowing anything about y'all people just see you from afar and be like that's a really traditionally pretty girl she's thin she looks like she has her shit together um (laughs) you know so I think that like when like especially like this was like 2002 2003 2004 um plus size options it was very even more limited than it is now and it's it's definitely expanding in a really big way but it was if I mean back then it was like 
you could go to Macy's Lane Bryant or Torrid basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so to walk in and see like a plus size person there, it was, or a, a, like a straight size person there, it was automatically like, what is she doing here? Does she know what she's talking about? Um, also she doesn't know that like the, I need these jeans to fit a very specific way. Like fitting a plus size body is just totally different. But I think that like you were there and the, like always cool and gracious with people not being the nicest to you at times because they just didn't know what to make of you. Um, but you were always really fantastic and so much fun to work with. And we've kept in touch. I know. And now here we are as adults and, um, you're a super successful author and I get to do your hair every six to eight weeks. And I love it when you're in the salon. I love visiting with you. Well, you're a super successful podcaster, (laughs) like hairstylist. So I mean, (laughs) okay. So let's talk a little bit about your career. Um, We'll start with this. What led you to writing in general and how do you develop these rich characters that are so relatable and real? Yeah. Um, I hated writing growing up. It (laughs) felt like homework to me. Um, It still sometimes does. Um, But I really, really wanted to be involved in arts in whatever form. Jessica and I ran in a lot of the same circles growing up. Lots of... um, artsy fartsy kids in the suburbs. Um, and so I was constantly looking for the kind of art that like would define me and the kind of art that, um, I could claim as my own. And I tried actual art. Turns out I was really bad at that. (laughs) Um, and I tried choir. I tried theater. I loved theater and I loved dancing, but neither of those things really stuck because, um, you know, plus size people have a really hard time existing in those spaces. It's gotten a lot better, but in the nineties and in the early aughts, it was even, it was so much worse. Um, so those places were never places that I felt like, you know, I was getting to be my best self. I was constantly having to like relegate myself to like costuming. And, you know, when I wanted to be, in the limelight, just like everybody else. I didn't want to have to play everyone's mom, you know, (laughs) like that's constantly what we're telling fat people they have to do in high school theater. Mm -hmm. Um, my dog's just like sauntering behind me. Sorry. Uh, but yeah, so I was constantly looking for art and it wasn't until my senior year of college, um, that I discovered young adult books. And I've always, I mean, I've always loved, um, entertainment media fiction having to do with teens. I really love the coming of age story. I think that we all do, you know what I mean? We all have a soft spot for that type of story. Um, and that really resonated with me. And so I read this little book series you might've heard of called Twilight. (laughs) And I was like, wow, turns out these sparkling vampires are really gratifying to read about. I don't know why, (laughs) but they are. Um, but I mean, people say all kinds of things about twilight. Um, and I'll, I always say this, um, phrase, don't yuck my yum. And twilight was such a yum for me. Like I, it was ridiculous. I loved it. It was escapist at honestly, one of the hardest chapters of my life. Um, and it really sort of made me realize that like, if this Mormon mom 
could have a dream about a sparkling vampire and write a book about it and millions of people across the world could fall in love with it. Maybe I could write one book that would be interesting or important to at least one person. Um, And so Twilight was the first time that books and writing became accessible to me because for so long, I think I constantly rejected writing because I thought like, this is something that old white men do, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So, uh, it took me a long time to realize that like writing is relevant now and you can write something that means something to someone immediately and you don't have to be dead. You don't have to be, um, you know, (laughs) owning people (laughs) in a, you know, like, I don't know, just the the writing history is very old and racist. So, (laughs) (laughs) But you kind of turn that on its head, though, because I feel like your characters have these elements of things that are not traditional ingenue characters like you might see in a Twilight or in other YA novels, like these elements of not fitting in, of having unique bodies, unique challenges um, in one way or the other. And I feel like that has to be by design a little bit that we want to put a spotlight on people who are different and maybe not what you would expect as the lead character in a novel. And I love that. I think it's what's making your work so relevant to so many people right now is that we're not looking at this version of your stereotypical ingenue, but we're looking at real life people that are doing simple things in really extraordinary ways. So congratulations on that. I love the way that you write your characters in the books. Thank you. Thank you. I think we're really done with that. You know what I mean? Like we're done. We're done trying to like look at our stories and look at our movies and our media and we're done trying to like put this really like bland like it's always been like this really bland girl that producers and writers and publishers will hope that anyone can fit themselves into and we've realized that that's not the path to success the path to success is specificity and so I want to know your identity I want to know your ethnicity I want to know your personal history like to me that's what makes a story compelling in any kind of way because even if it's not something I personally identify with it's something that I may not know in my everyday life and it's something that I'm getting very special access to through the art of storytelling I love Um, that so yeah so your like shift in your career to go like to this number one New York Times bestselling author and now all of a sudden like Dolly Parton's thrown in you know like on (laughs) the Netflix special and you've got big name actresses like Jennifer Aniston that are you know acting in these things that that has got to have been a crazy ride for you. Um, so tell us a little bit about how your life got different, you know, like through that whole process. (laughs) Um, yeah. So my very first book came out in 2014 and I was a librarian at the time and I continued to work in libraries until I think the summer of 2015. Um, Dumplin' came out late 2015, so around September, and we sold the film rights that summer. And I always said that if I sold the film rights to a, a book, it would give me enough, like, I don't know, not just actual courage, but like financial courage <laughs> to feel like I can make a go with this. Um, I'm really fortunate in that I loved being a librarian and I would go back to it in a heartbeat. So I wasn't leaving behind a career that I was like aching to get out of. Um, 
and that's good because it makes the transition a whole lot less desperate. Um, cause I know I I've known so many writers who are like, I have to do this cause I can only do this. Um, and writing has never been that thing for me. And I'm really fortunate for that. Um, but yeah, the, the shift definitely, it's, it's easy to say all those things in one sentence and to feel like it happened so quickly, but in reality, um, you know, Dumplin came out, uh, in 2015 and it, and it did hit the New York Times bestseller list immediately. And that was a wild, unexpected thing. Um, the thing with the New York Times bestseller list that people outside of the industry don't realize is that the requirements, um, and the, way that they structure the list is forever changing. So it sounds like this amazing thing and it is this amazing thing, but it's also this kind of thing where it's like, if my book had come out two months before, it would have never hit the list. So it's kind of like this luck of the draw thing in a way. Um, And I was really fortunate in that they changed the structure of how we're looking at book sales. and who is eligible for those things um, around the time that my first book came out. And so it's really, it's really helped a lot of authors' careers exploded, explode in a way. And it has really for the last five years, that's when a big change happened. Um, and then the movie came out in 2018, I think. So it was like, it was this three-year time span where all these things were happening and they were like, you know, the, not small moments, but they were like small moments along the way for Mm me, but you know, the public experiences, those things all at once. So all at once to those people, it's like New York time, bestselling author, Jennifer Aniston, Dolly Parton movie. When in reality, it was this really long drawn out process. I mean, you can ask Jessica, it was like, she sees me every six weeks. It's like, what's new? And it's like, nothing. I don't think they're going to make the movie. I don't know what's going on. Right. (laughs) I'm trying not to think about it. Every appointment. (laughs) was some new update of, you know, and honestly, it was really a privilege and an honor to watch it from the outside um, looking in because I saw how much work goes into these things firsthand and, um, and also like, you know, kind of getting to know things before it was super public was like really fun and cool. And um, that, yeah, like, I think that people view some really successful people as like this overnight success and it's, that's never really the story, right? It's never, never an overnight success. It's yeah. years of hard work that gets you there. And I saw that yeah. firsthand with the dumpling journey for sure. So it was really fun to watch. Yeah. All yeah. very exciting. So in preparation for our time with you today, we've got to spend a lot of time talking about being allies in different communities because you are so active in the LGBTQ community. You're really active in the plus size community. And I know for me anyway, have shed a lot of light on ways to be an ally, Mm -hmm. um, specifically in the plus size community. And so I'm excited for us to get to talk about that a little bit today, um, to share some of that exposure with our listeners and our viewers too, because like I said, it's been a real education for me. Yeah, for me too. Um, and so what, what we'd like to start with are the terms, um, as allies, what to use versus what not to use, and maybe a little bit of why so that, so that 
this conversation going forward when we use specific words, at least people know the context as to all that. So if you could do that for us. For sure. So um, I think the best rule of thumb when you're talking about bodies is that you should wait for someone to self-identify their body before you choose what kind of language you're going to use in regards to themselves. Um, But for me, I use the word fat and I use it frequently. Um, And I use it positively. For me, the word fat is not a negative word. I think that um, for so long we have had this idea that fat is an awful, shameful thing. And it's because that word has been used to weaponize, uh, to be, it's been weaponized against so many people to make fun of them, to put them down, to call them fat and lazy. We're so used to the word fat being accompanied with some other negative descriptor. Um, and so for me, when I started going on this journey with myself to embrace my body and advocate for my body just as it is, I decided that I'm going to use the word that was used against me for so long and I'm going to use it with pride because there's nothing wrong with my body being fat. It's just like if I have freckles or if I have long hair or if I'm thin or if I have knobby knees, like it's just a thing about my body. Um, And so a lot of people will not like using the word fat because there's so much hurt um, and uh, history built up in that word for them. So a lot of people use the word plus size, fluffy, like curvy like any word that you could imagine under the sun the only word that I don't like using is the word obese Um, I think it's a word that's been used in a medical setting for a really long time um, to identify and discriminate against fat people basically Um, and so it's just it's the one word that I just don't appreciate being used in general Okay. Yeah. Um, that was new for us. Yes. Um, the fact that obese is maybe a bad word, but at least in conversations with you that fat is okay, or I believe you said that plus size is also widely typically okay. When, I mean, when in doubt, plus size is never, uh, plus size is really not one you can go wrong with. Okay. Got it. I know that we talked about, um, obese a little bit. And I was telling a story about when I was really committed to losing some weight at the doctor's office. And I had dropped like 38 pounds, like for me, more weight than I had ever lost in my life. And I remember going to the doctor's office and looking at the chart on the wall that told you how much your height versus weight needed to be in order to be considered obese. Or there was obviously like a section for morbidly obese. And I was so excited for some reason to go to the doctor and see where I fell on this chart now that I had lost these 38 pounds. And I was still technically obese in this medical, you know, like term. And I remember like the deflation and, you know, like the shame that came attached with that word when I felt like I had been working so hard, you know, and had achieved, um, so much. And so I definitely want to get into, um, a conversation about healthcare. Um, cause I know that that's something that we have all talked about the three of us and just how weight losing weight and being termed obese and, or, you know, plus size or fat fits into medical care nowadays. Yeah. 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 So Um, sorry, go ahead, Julie. No, no. I'm just umming. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Go on, Jessica. Um, well, that 
Before we get into the healthcare conversation, I think it's important to say that we all struggle with body image issues, um, but that you specifically have exposed Laurie and I to this idea that there is a difference when fat people are um, discriminated against in areas of healthcare, which yeah. we want to get into air travel, discrimination in the workplace, and many um, other areas and aspects of life um, that we all struggle, but that they're, it's just different. Well, because yeah. people tell you to eat a cheeseburger. Right. And then people high five me for losing five pounds, you know, but that that is very different than being discriminated against with a healthcare provider or exactly. in a job circumstance. And neither one of us are living that reality in a way that somebody who is fat or plus size may be experiencing it. Right. So, yeah. yeah so like, let's get into that healthcare conversation. Yeah. Um, so uh, a little bit about like, the idea of like thin privilege and things like that. I think like, like Lori and Jessica, like you would look at your, both of yourselves in the mirror and see like obvious body differences between the two of you. But like you both still have like what Lori was talking about, which is like this thin privilege of like being able to move through the world without your body making a significant difference. Okay. Um, I'm you know, I'm a highly successful person and I still have to wonder every time if I get on a plane, if someone is going to say something that I'm like encroaching on their space or something like that. And it's going to get me kicked off a plane to stop me from like going to like a very important speaking engagement or something like that. Like the fact that like, that's, that's a thing that we're even worrying about or considering is really difficult. Um, I know Jessica, you were just saying we should get into like the medical fat phobia of it all. I mean, um, I, I'm sure he won't mind me sharing this, but my husband who is much, much thinner than I am, um, was recently diagnosed as diabetic. And when we first met, he was larger and he rapidly lost a lot of weight. And every doctor we went to was like, high five, you're doing great. Uh, this is amazing. Keep it up. Like you're looking so good, buddy. Um, and they were just never asking him the right questions or doing the right things. Cause we're so used to congratulating weight loss. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until this fall that we found out for the last three years that his body is not processing sugars correctly. And he's basically, his body is basically been starving itself um so it's just this idea of like if you're a fat person everything that is wrong with you has to be related to the weight of your body and if you are losing weight then you're obviously like on the right trajectory and once you lose that weight then we can talk about anything else that might be a problem for you but I mean I still can't go get a flu shot or I still can't go just get like, you know, like I have like basically like tennis elbow, but for writers sometimes, um, because I'm typing all the time and I still can't get all those things checked out with out getting like this grand inquisition of like, are you, are you taking care of yourself? Like, do you like, have you thought about losing weight? Have you thought about weight loss surgery? How, like, I mean, I'm a fat lady. I've spent most of my life thinking about losing weight. Like, you know what I mean? Like I'm just a woman in society. Of course I've thought about losing weight. Like it's like the, the thing that's been drilled into my brain since the age of seven. Um, so yeah, I think that the, we're constantly, 
begging people, fat people and telling fat people that they have to be more healthy, that they have to be thinner. They have to do all these things to be acceptable to us, but we're not giving them equal access to healthcare. Um, and we're not making those things available to them because we just like doctors will not have discussions with you about your own body until you're a certain weight, you know? Um, and that's, that's a highly frustrating thing to deal with. And like for an entire people group that I like work with on a regular basis and who I converse with. And also for me personally in my own life, like it's just, it's a very belittling thing to like walk into a doctor's office and be like, you know, I'm a fairly successful person. I kind of have my shit together. Um, but like, you know, that's the one thing it's like a, it's, it, it's the fastest way to like, make me feel powerless, you know? So it's a real thing that a lot of, a lot of plus size people deal with regularly. God, so much to say about that. I know firsthand (laughs) from my experience that, um, I, so I may be thin, but I don't necessarily eat great and I don't exercise, but has a doctor ever cared or asked what my diet is? If I exercise, they haven't, I just get a high five every time I go, Right, you know, like good for you. You've had a baby and you're in your thirties and you look great. Good job. But just because someone is, um, smaller does not mean that they're healthy. Like a size does not equate to health at all. Um, and you've definitely opened my eyes to that, Julie, that, um, I do have that privilege because I'll, you know, stay up all night eating Reese's peanut butter cups and like eating fast food. And it, it just, my body is what it is. And no doctor has ever been like, Oh, Hey, so this is how you take care of your body Mm -hmm. ever. No one's ever talked to me about that. And it's so much based on like whatever diet trend or fad is out there. Like most of what I've known over my lifetime about nutrition and how food works in bodies is because I read a diet book or because I, you know, like that it is whatever hot buzz topic is going on out there with health and nutrition. When in reality, we're learning so much about what doctors are not reimbursed for in respect to talking to their patients about nutrition, you know, and why, um, who, who should we go to for those things? And if you're looking at the plus size community and all they're getting back is, Hey, have you ever thought about losing weight? You know, like that there is so much more information that's available there about your health besides, have you thought about it? You know, like teaching people right. the right way to uh, learn how their body processes sugar, for instance, in your husband's situation, you know, like that not all weight loss is healthy weight loss. And I can speak to my own experience, like the way I lost weight was not healthy um, and had physical, you know, repercussions for me that I wasn't aware of until they were happening. And all I got when I went to the doctor as I was losing the weight was, hey, you're doing a great job and keep on doing that. They never asked how. And then or, you had your gallbladder and then taken I had out. My gallbladder removed, you know, like, and so <laughs> you know, like, in retrospect, it's so clear um, what you're saying, you know, like I can see that whole thing coming to fruition. And I just wish that there was a way, I don't know how to advocate for that besides to tell people like, you've got to go in and make, you got to 
tirelessly look for the doctors that are going to work with you, listen to you, help you. And that already sounds so exhausting and draining to me. Like I see why it's easier to just be like, yeah, why? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, um, unfortunately it's not very active in our area, but there is a movement out there called the health at every size movement. And there are doctors that prescribe to that. Um, and you can like, you know, try to find doctors through that network. Um, so there's a lot of, um, efforts to see those things. A lot of, um, nutritionists are definitely starting to like get on the bandwagon and dietitians are starting to realize that like diets don't work. This isn't, you know what I mean? Like if you are trying to take care of your body, a diet is the not, is not the right way to do it. Just learning how to listen to your body, learning about intuitive eating. That's a really, that was a game changer for me learning, um, what made my body felt feel good learning that there are no bad foods or there are no good foods there is just food food cannot have <laughs> food is just a thing it can't be moral one way or the right. other um so i think it's actually i mean i don't know when this podcast will release but it's a really relevant thing to be thinking about as we head into the new year there's all these like um you know weight loss new year's resolutions diet industry companies are trying to get your money right now like this is the time of year that is their bread and butter and it really you know comes down to the fact that like you only get one body and if you keep treating it like a rubber band and just like stretching it out stretching it out snapping it back stretching it out stretching it out snapping it back it, it it's gonna like it's gonna kill you you know so like um the yo-yo dieting, I mean, the last diet I went on like ruined my digestive tract. It took me years to be able to properly digest food again. Um, so it's just, I, I say all that not to like scare people or freak people out, but just to say that like, like you can just, it's okay to find joy in food. It's okay if food is only fuel for you. Like whatever your relationship with food is, like it's okay. It doesn't have to be um, this like picture perfect Instagram, like acai bowl, you know what I mean? Like whatever, whatever you have to do to like get by is okay. Yeah, man. Everything you're saying is just hitting me. It is my favorite thing that you have said just in respect to diet culture and bodies is just that if you're doing things because you love your body, then that's the way to go. You know, like that you can't heal your body and be healthy in your body from a place of hate or shame that you make choices to eat, move, be based out of love, then that is ultimately the path that's going to get you to the best body that you can have, you know? And, um, I think that that just sums it up in a really huge way is that you do what you do because you love it, not because you hate it. Right. The, the only path to getting anywhere really with any decision in your life, but what, you know, in respect to diet culture is, doing things out of hatred for your body is just this, um, it puts out this like, a negative energy into it. And that I think that doing things out of a place of hate isn't sustainable. No, the, the only way to sustain health maybe would be to do it out of 
love, like no matter what size that is or what that looks like for you. Yeah. So I think that one, I mean, if listeners are looking for like one proactive thing that they can do to kind of buck up against the norms of how we've been taught to treat our bodies and how we've been taught to look at other people's bodies, um, my favorite thing to do is when I see someone who I love and value and cherish post a before and after photo of weight loss, um, before and after photos are like my biggest pet peeve, by the way, because all you're doing is sending a very clear message to anyone in your life who looks like your before photo that their body isn't valuable and that for you, their body will always be a before photo. And why do you have to put that? Like, if you're, if you're truly, if you're truly losing weight for like to better yourself, or you believe it's to better yourself, or it's for reasons that are for only you, then why do you need that outward validation of sharing something like that on social media? Um, so if you are someone who posts before and after photos, or if you know someone who posts before and after photos, I really uh, challenge and encourage people who do those things or see people who do those things to see if um, those people would consider measuring their physical um accomplishments in different ways like is really is weight loss or is like a six-pack abs like are those the only way that you can say I have accomplished this thing or can you say this year my goal was to run a 5k and I fucking did it and I'm awesome Mm -hmm. do you know what I mean like how can you illustrate success in your own body without it always coming down to the fact that at this moment in time, my body was smaller. And at this moment in time, my body was bigger. And when my body is smaller, I'm always winning. Why? Why? Like, what are you saying to every fat person, you know, do you like, especially if you love and cherish those people, you know? Well, and there are so many people in the plus size and fat community that, I mean, like love their body, feel and look super hot and are rocking. Like, I think the way you feel about it is so much more important than, you know, like how that projects and that you look at somebody like a Tess Holiday or, you know, like, Oh God, Tess Holiday is like a beautiful example. She's so awesome. She's only aesthetically beautiful that we look at with our eyes because she is feeling that and loving it and rocking. And nobody can look at her and say, you're not sexy and beautiful and awesome. and Like I just, I feel like the more we see people fully embrace and accept wherever they happen to be, you know, it's not like I would ever judge what direction she was with her weight or her style. I just see how she feels about it because it shines through her like that. And that I think is so powerful for um, our images of a of all bodies, you know, because yeah. you can look at people on the flip side who are also very thin, you know, and that have the being whole body like that. But same thing, you know, like if they feel it, then all of that other stuff kind of falls away. And so the more that you can share the self-love, you know, and show other people that, yeah, however my body looks right now to you, like, this is how I feel about it. That's empowerment on a different level. I think that's really normalizing all bodies, no matter how they, how they happen mm-hmm. to look. Yeah. I think another really big game changer for a lot of people I know is 
Um, we don't realize how much time we spend on social media and just scroll through your Instagram feed really fast and look at the people you're following. How diverse is your Instagram feed? Is your Instagram feed entirely white? Is it entirely thin? Like what are the bodies that you are normalizing in your brain every day that are bodies that you think are beautiful? You know what I mean? Like maybe you only think that thin bodies are beautiful because that's the only thing you're showing yourself. Right. That's an interesting exercise. I'm going to have to do that. Well, I think I talked about this several episodes back that when I was looking at my social media feed, to your point, I was like, it needs to be more diverse. And I was really thinking more about like my own image of my own body size that I wanted to see more people that reflected the way that I look sometimes. So I wanted to see women who had a muffin top that fell up over the top of their (laughs) jeans, you know, like I wanted to see, um, things that I wanted to retrain my brain, you know, and retrain my version of what I thought was beautiful. And what I found was that there are so many people out there that are like living it and loving it. And it was so inspiring to me. And now my feed has gotten a lot more diverse, you know, because I'm on purpose trying to widen my version because I know this was months back when we started working on this episode with you. And like I said, I'd learned so much just about how naive I was to my own perception of like everybody being a beautiful body, um, that now I embrace myself and everybody else so much more because that's constantly being shown to me on the feeds on the regular. It was powerful to diversify my social media feed. And, um, like I said, I don't know that I really even realized how impressionable I was in that respect until I started to do that. So yeah, I think that's an excellent point for people to take home for sure. Um, do we want to talk about discrimination in the workplace? Because that was new for me. It was new for me too. Um, So when we had our initial conversation, Julie, you, we had talked about healthcare, air travel, but discrimination in the workplace was really new for me and how, um, fat people are not protected. So what does that mean? Really? Yeah. So there are protections put in place, um, that if you can prove that you have been fired from your job for, um, not every place, sexual, sexual identity isn't protected every place. Um, but like gender, uh, race, things like that. Um, but there are no protections in place that you cannot be fired for your body size or that you will not be hired somewhere for your body size. Um, and there's unfortunately not a lot about, there's not a lot to say about it because it's just that, um, fat people are not a protected group of people. Um, that's why you can say that someone's being kicked off an airplane because they're fat. That's why you can fire someone because they're fat. You can say that they're unable to do their job because of the size of their body or something like that. Um, and there's no, there's no set standard, um, available or protections available to fat people for them to say, I think I was discriminated against because of, you know, the size or shape of my body. Um, I'm really lucky that I haven't worked in industries where that's been put into question or put into, um, check. But that said, I've always searched out places where I knew that plus size people were welcome. Um, right now I essentially work for myself. I sell my books to whoever will buy them. Um, so this 
doesn't apply to me in any way now. But when I first started looking at jobs, even, you know, how Jessica, we met a, a job at the mall. Like I looked for a place where plus size people were welcomed and cherished um, because I didn't want to face the reality of working in a place where I was not valued um, because that's the reality for a lot of, a lot of plus size people. Yeah, that's wild. Um, we've touched on air travel a little bit. Um, and I know that from past conversations, like you even have your preferences for when you do travel, right. Of airlines that you prefer versus not, I guess. Um, because I mean, and wasn't it, Oh God, what's his name? Kevin Smith. Yeah. There was that whole situation. Um, And that was the first time I had ever really heard something about that where, you know, you have to buy two seats. And I, I just remember thinking, what? Yeah. Like it, and Kevin Smith is, you know, an extremely successful actor, producer, director. Like, like, yeah, he's that, um, it just, it blew my mind. And so, um, your experience with air travel. Yeah. I mean, I could do an entire podcast about (laughs) flying while fat and traveling while fat. (laughs) Um, but so what actually happened with the Kevin Smith thing is years ago, he was on a Southwest airlines flight and they kicked him off the plane and it was such bad PR for their company that they completely changed the way that they allow fat people to fly. And so now Southwest airlines is actually the most friendly, fat friendly airline out there. Um, if you just walk up to the counter and say, Hey, I, I got a little bit of cushion in my tush. I think I'm going to need an extra seat. They give you an extra seat for free. And if they have to move people around on the flight, that's something that they have to figure out. Um, and the onus is not on you. So I mean, when you're spending (laughs) hundreds of dollars to get into a tuna can with a couple under a couple other hundred people, the onus should not be on you for like, how is my body going to fit on this? Is this going to be okay? Am I going to get in trouble? Um, The job should always be that of the airline to ensure safety and comfort Um, and Southwest. They're not perfect, but they're the first airline to really catch on to that. I'm really lucky and fortunate that a lot of places I go now, I get to fly business class. And so that's really changed um, my life. But even then, sometimes business class seats are very tiny still when you're on like, you know, regional airlines. And so like, I'll even still get on a flight and sit next, sit in literally an entire cabin full of like crusty old white guys who have never in their life flown coach. And they look at me like I'm a pariah. Like I'm like some kind of cancer. Like what am I doing in their beloved first class that's separating them from all the peasants with like this tiny little curtain and God forbid, like my elbow brush up against them or something like that. Um, but there's just this, this sense of entitlement for some reason when people get on an airplane and it's because the airlines have have like shrunk their seats down and shrunk their seats down so that when you do get on that plane, that seat feels like I paid for this. This is mine. And I get it. I get it because it's so expensive. The seats are so tiny. Um, but that should not be a thing that's on air travelers 
to figure out on their own. That should be something that airlines are starting to figure out on their own because I shouldn't have to negotiate space with my seatmate when, you know, you have an entire airplane and you can figure that out. Um, so yeah, I just think that, um, we all deserve to go places, you know, we all deserve to experience the world and we all deserve to like, shit, if I have to go to my grandmother's funeral, I know fat people who have missed like funerals of their loved ones because they're so terrified of flying, um, who have like tried to drive to go see a dying loved one instead of flying and have missed the chance to see a dying loved one. Like that's tragic. That's unacceptable. I'm not, I'm not kidding you ask a fat person what they're most scared of and they'll say going to the doctor and getting on an airplane. Yeah. And it's because we are taught for so long that we are not allowed to take up space, that we are like the space that we have been allowed to take up is a blessing. And we're lucky that anyone allows us to take up that much space to begin with. But I really do encourage fat people and plus size people to take up space and to not be apologetic about it. Like I'm not going to sit on an airplane and man spread and be all over in someone's business, but I'm also not going to try to make myself smaller than I am because I physically cannot like, like this is the body I have and I'm going to get on a plane and I'm going to go to the place that we're all flying to. Cause I deserve to go there just as much as someone else does. And I deserve whatever, op- whatever opportunities lay on, lie on the other end of that flight, just just as much as the person next to me does. Yeah. I, I almost wonder these airlines, I'm like, what size do you like, where are you getting your information from? Because of course I don't have it here in front of me, but the statistics show that the majority of Americans are, well, as as we talk about women's sizes are like size 14 14, to 16 16 plus that um that it just kind of blows my mind that they think everybody fits into this one micro tiny micro size that is so not like i mean fat people know how big airplane seats are and i can tell you that the average airplane seat is like 16 to 17 inches wide um that's not a lot of space like it's really not like i in my younger years before I was like loud and proud about who I am, I would just sit there with like my tongue, like bit between my teeth as like the armrests of a plane are bruising the shit out of my hips, just trying to survive something. So I could like go see a friend or go see family. You know what I mean? Like I'm just trying to go somewhere. We're all trying to go somewhere. Like the enemy is not your fat seat mate. The enemy is the person, the corporation charging you hundreds of dollars for a subpar experience. God, seriously. It's, uh, it's wild. The other thing that we talked so much about that I learned so much about was just the shopping and retail aspect, um, and how different that is for somebody like Jessica or I, um, as opposed to people who are shopping outside of traditional size norms, you know, Mm -hmm. like in a merchant. And one thing that I thought was so interesting was because the median size, you know, hits this like 14 to 16 and up 
that there's so many more people that are shopping in that size range, but that so few companies want to commit funds and efforts into growing their size range into a plus size category, which seems insane to me considering how many shoppers there are that are looking for that. Yeah. It's like, they don't want money. I don't right. know. You, you just don't want my money. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. I think I sent you guys something about, like the average American woman is a size 16 and she can only shop at like a very small percentage of stores. It's true. Yeah. Um, and well, there are some malls and malls have hundreds of stores. There are some malls I can walk into and not find a single piece of clothing that will fit my body. Um, and that is wild to me. Like I'm a clothes horse. I want all the clothing. Yeah. Um, I think that what the clothing essentially comes down to is it, it sounds like a really um, kind of like vain, ridiculous thing at first. But the reality is that like clothing and the way we present ourselves allow us to move through the world seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, the clothing you put on your body, the way you do your hair, it's the first message that you send to someone about who you are and you know, how you value yourself, um, and what you, what you expect those people to, or how you expect those people to value you as well. Um, I want to walk into a job interview and be able to wear the exact same type of clothing that all my peers might wear to a job interview. You know what I mean? Like I, I want access to that type of clothing so that I can be successful in the same way they're successful. Um, So yeah, it is a ridiculous and vain thing at times because I do just want tons of pretty clothes that make me happy because it's 2020 and I'm trying to um, fill the hole in my heart with physical belongings. (laughs) But I also, I also want the opportunity uh, to look like my friends or the opportunity to not look like my friends. Right. And I want the chance to like build my own style. And when there are four stores you can shop at, there's not a lot of room for you to create your own style or your own aesthetic. Right. And I think that two things about that one, that's why I loved working at Torrid because well, back when Julie and I worked at Torrid in the early two thousands, it was much more, um, alternative. It's edgy. It was more edgy. They've definitely rebranded to a little more mainstream, but I loved that that style and aesthetic was available to the plus size community because at least at the time, I don't remember ever seeing that anywhere else. And so that's really why I loved that brand in the first place. But another piece to this that is absolute bullshit is that along with financial privilege, if you have money and you can shop at a Neiman Marcus, that your sizes just automatically get smaller. Boy, this is a real thing. As opposed to shopping at Target or Old Navy, where literally the same body is a bigger number. And there's so much of like a mind fuck around that. I have clothes that range everywhere from a size eight to a size 20. And they all fit me, you know, like it just depends on where I bought it, what size and how many hundreds of dollars you're willing to invest. Yeah. The eights cost a lot more money than the size 18s do, you know, like that. Mm -hmm. It's so weird how I never know what size is going to be for me until you step in and start trying stuff on. You're like, oh, well, and the thing is like the, like, (sighs) 
Torn is an inexpensive retailer, but it's like a, it's like a gap priced retailer. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's not cheap. It's not shopping at Walmart, but the quality, and this is no shame on Torrid. I love Torrid. I love what they do for so many people, but the quality is not the same quality that you're going to get if you go shopping at Gap or Banana Republic. Right. Um, plus size fashion is much more of a fast fashion quality because there are so few options out there and there are so few um, actual factories making plus size clothing. I mean, like, it's crazy. Like I want to have the chance to like go out and splurge on a ridiculous piece of clothing from a designer that I love, but I can't do that because like every fat girl since the beginning of time knows we're forever relegated to like finding a cute pair of earrings or a cute handbag while all of our friends are trying on clothes in the fitting room, you know? So I just, um, there has been a lot of growth made in that regard, but it's not enough. And the growth that has been made is to like a size 20. So like good job for you brands, I guess, but like everyone above a size 20 still wants to wear clothes too. Um, I think it's really, we were talking about being allies earlier and a really important way that thinner people can be an ally is to put your money where your mouth is and support brands that have inclusive sizing. So brands that go up to like a five X or a six X or something like that. So if you're looking for a place to get leggings, you should go to like girlfriend collective. Like they have an incredible size inclusive line. If you're looking for some incredible jeans, you should check out universal standard. They go up to a size 40 in women's sizes and I'm not talking like 40 inches, like an actual women's size 40. Um, so like really the only way that we're going to get change is to like actively spend money in places that are making changes. Um, Cause that's the language the world speaks is money. Uh, so I, I love that. And if you wouldn't mind sending us some of those so that we could put it in the episode notes notes, um, just so that that's available to people and we can put it on the post as well, because I had never heard of any of those brands and I would love to contribute to that. So, yeah. Yeah. So I guess one of the things I want to make sure that we get to is like how fat people are represented in the media and culture and, you know, like, because I feel like your writing and then, you know, by relation moving into Netflix is that there are more, there's more representation now than there had been. And how do we consistently show and represent more fat and plus size people in the culture that, sh- that can make it more inclusive, you know, cause just talking about social media feeds and, you know, what we read and what we see that that is prevalent in how people absorb what's okay and what's not because, And the reason why I wanted to touch on this is because I grew up with, you know, not a lot of representation as far as a scale of bodies go. And the only time I did see that representation, and I've talked to Julie about this personally, is in a negative way. So we're talking like shallow hell with, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow and I believe it was Jack Black. Jack Black. I yeah. could be wrong, but it was not Jack Black. Thank God, because I love Jack Black. <laughs> was it not? Black. No, it was. Um, oh gosh, I can't remember his name, but it's unfortunate because I like the actor too. <laughs> like, it it's Black? unfortunate. Um, but anyway, 
I think that a lot of people would remember shallow hell and that, um, that's kind of like what I remember of representation of bodies in movies that that's what I was stuck with until, you know, um, very recently. Yeah. I think that, um, I have to know, sorry, everyone. I have to know. It was Jack Black. I I thought it was. Yeah. Yeah, that's so that's so sad. Um, I love Jack Black, and I like Gwyneth <laughs> Paltrow too. Like, I don't have beef with Gwyneth Paltrow. You're cool, goop, and all that stuff. Like, I'm down. You can put a weird like amethyst egg in my vagina. I don't care. Yes. Um, that's for another, that's another episode. episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are we gonna have to rate this episode, PG thirteen? Um, but I just I think that yes, uh we have had like a proliferation of representation yet. Um, but it's it's not gonna be enough for a really long time. Uh growing up, my icon was Ursula, the fat sea witch. Yes. Um, and that's awesome and that's cool. And I love Ursula. She's based off a drag queen. Like, who wouldn't love Ursula? But Obviously. like how shitty is that that as a child, <laughs> my Disney icon was the evil sea witch? Like, why? Why didn't I get to have a Disney, like an iconic Disney princess to look up to that I felt like I could easily step into her shoes, you know? Um, so we're, you know, I'm, I'm actively trying to like make changes and to try to like, like, you know, bump up against those standards and ask for better constantly. Um, and I know that there are lots of other people doing it too, but it's, um, it's gotta be something for that. We find the, like, you know, producers and publishers, they have to see success in it, unfortunately for, before it becomes like this widespread thing. Um, I think it's, it's getting better. It's on the way to getting better, but for so long, people thought that in our stories, we wanted to see people that we could aspire to be. They didn't think that we wanted to see people that we could be. Um, and that's just not, that's just not where we are anymore. Like we, like, I love Julia Roberts, Julia Roberts. If you're listening, call me, but like, (laughs) like I wanted, I, I, you know, I, we all love Julia Roberts. We all wanted to be Julia Roberts, but that's not how, our society works anymore. Like we, we want to be Julia Roberts because we look like Julia Roberts. We want to be Julia Roberts because, you know, like, it's just, I don't know. We're having this really great cultural moment in our world and it's time for our movies and books and TV and media in general to catch up to that moment. Um, because the younger generations are hungry for it and they can see through the bullshit. So yeah, I think we're, I think we're on our way, but it's not there yet. Authenticity, it translates anymore, you know, like that, um, like you said, everybody loves Julia, but that there are so, there's so much more to that spectrum and to be able to really embrace whatever it is that you bring to the table. Um, I know that doing, uh, video podcasts, for example, has been a big education for me where I'm like, oh my gosh, look how awkward and weird you are. Like, stop that, you know? And that, it, but, feel but that. sometimes it's the awkward, weird parts that people, connect to the most, you know, like that it's, um, that 
just doing you authentically, whoever that happens to be, is going to give somebody else space to do them too, you know? And the more, and I think that's why if we're looking at like Instagram lives or people's stories, you know, where they're just like up at 5 a.m. with wild hair and no makeup and they're, you know, crying baby, like that that is translating to people right now in a really real way. And I feel like hopefully with representation in the media on all fronts, that that's going to help move that needle further to a space of people being real instead of people building up this image of uh, who they're aspiring to be one day. Yeah. We can only hope. So shall we keep going? Oh my gosh. I feel like there's just so much. Um, so I guess like the one thing that I want to end on, um, before we sum everything up is Julie, how would you respond to a critic saying that being plus size is a choice or that you're promoting obesity? Um, I've been asked this before. (laughs) Um, I was actually uh, speaking at a university somewhere and this uh, very uh, smart man professor stood up and said, what does it feel like to be promoting or to be promoting the obesity epidemic? What is it? Maybe he just said, what does it feel like to be promoting obesity? And I just said, it feels great because <laughs> Good for you, girl, <laughs> because <laughs> we're out here, we're fat people out here and no one's been promoting us for a very long time. So I'm ready to promote us. Um, no, I think that, you know, I just like, if there are people out there still asking those questions, like what year are you living in? Like, why do you hate yourself this much that that's the most interesting thing about you is that you asked me how I feel about promoting obesity. You know what I mean? Like I just, I, I don't, I don't have time for you. Like you are not my people. You are obviously not who I am talking to. And if you look at me and are so offended by me and how I value and respect myself, then that problem is definitely more with you than it is with me. Because if you have a problem with me respecting myself, I can only imagine how much you hate yourself. That just the sheer idea of me respecting myself offends you to that degree. So to them, I would say a lot of things that I probably shouldn't say on your podcast. (laughs) No girl. I mean, (laughs) I am 100% with you. I think that that's beautifully put and honestly good. I love that answer. Um, I was just in, in preparing this, I was like, oh my gosh, there's going to be someone out there surely being haters. Well, but that's also part of why it's so important to like dig into this stuff and have uncomfortable conversations that make people uncomfortable. Like it challenges their status quo and the way that they see the world. And that's the whole point is to challenge that and open up this little space for them where they're like, Oh, maybe there's more to this whole concept idea of people being plus size, obese, fat, overweight, whatever you want to call it, you know, like, that there's more to the spectrum than I had considered. And that that is the only way that you move the needle forward with some of those people and really push this. And that's uh, at least our hope with the podcast with um, any guests that we have on. We just want to open people's hearts and minds to other people's stories and um, 
be on a journey together. And show the immense value that is there in hearing those stories because I feel like we keep repeating this over and over again, but that we've just learned so much that has value to our own lives that it makes us want to shine a light on this more. So, I mean, yeah, we could go. Hours, you know, we could like, keep on talking, but I feel like we're like already way over our yeah. time limit. But, um, so to sum it up, Julie, I think that you put it beautifully that all bodies are good bodies. And I love when you say that, um, especially in Dumplin. And I think that you were even saying it years ago, yeah. even before you wrote it in Dumplin that, um, especially when it relates to swimsuit season, you know, that, Everybody is a swimsuit body. Um, I love that. And I love when you say that, um, that no matter what is, and I'm using air quotes here, wrong with your body, whatever that means for you, the only way to go about that is out of a place of love, not out of a place of, you know, um, hate or punishing yourself that those are my two big takeaways. Yeah, I think that, um, like, one of the pillars of Julie Murphy is that, like, if you're going to do something, if you want to change some kind of habit, if you're trying to eat differently, if you're trying to work out, all these different things, like, your end game can never be just to lose weight because things are going to happen in your life. You're, I mean, you might get pregnant. You might have a death in your family. Like there are going to be things that happen in your life that cause your body to fluctuate in some kind of way. You might be like holed up in your house for a whole year because there's a global <laughs> pandemic. You know what I mean? Yeah, like right. Who knows? Can happen. Like <laughs> just like you should discover new activities and discover new ways of eating because you find it exciting and because you like the way it makes your body feel, not because you like the way it makes your body look. Um, I would just also very quickly say to anyone listening that if you are the kind of person that's like, how does it feel to be spreading the obesity epidemic? I would really challenge you. And I think that Jessica could probably, uh, Jessica and Lori could probably link these in the show notes, but just to give a listen to, there's a great podcast out there called She's All Fat. There's also a great article out there that I send people all the time called Everything You Know About Fat People Is Wrong. Um, It's a highly researched, really fantastic article actually written by a thin person, um, who took the time to really go out there and do some really incredible research. Um, but yeah, thank you all so much for having me. I had so much fun. Um, and let's just continue to challenge everything we think we know. Yes. And the, like, seriously, we have other notes here that like we meant to touch on, but we've already been talking for so long that this may have to be a part two. We may have to book you another time to also get into other areas. And so Julie, we honor you. We celebrate you. Thank you so much for being a badass and for showing up for everybody in your orbit. And, um, we love you. Yeah continued success. Thank you so much for being here. Love y'all. Thank you. All right, badasses. Thank you so much for joining us today. Again, don't forget to to subscribe. Words are hard. (laughs) Um, Subscribe, like, rate, review, share, um, and share this with this episode, especially with um, people in your life. Um, Anybody that needs to hear this, whether they'll like it or they won't like it, like you should still share it with them because everybody needs to hear. So thank you guys. Carry on. 